I commend you for your willingness to undertake learning new songs. My favorite line from that song, Jesus, Thank You, is the line that says, Once an enemy, now seated at your table. You have the beautiful image of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from verses 18 through 27. We're going to look at verses 18 through 23, but we're going to read the whole uh, paragraph. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18, we're going to read from 18 to 27. You follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read. Dear children... This is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all, all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you... See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Uh, we're moving slowly through this book of 1 John, and we always have the audience that John was writing to these churches in and around Ephesus in mind as we read, but not very far from our minds, whenever we go through this, is uh, the men and women in the background. People who had been a part of the church but had left. They're all the way through this book. Uh, the reason that they had left was because of their understanding of who Jesus is. Who is Jesus Christ? Is he God the Son incarnate or not? And there were some who had left the church over that issue. There were other disagreements based on John's response to them. They seemed to have bristled at some of the commands that the apostles gave, particularly the command to love one another. But the main reason that they had left was doctrinal, was theological. Who is Jesus Here's a church that didn't split over the color of the carpet in the foyer. And they didn't split over whether they needed to sing more hymns or choruses. It was the identity of Jesus. These former church members are always in the background of John's writing as, as we go through this. But actually in this paragraph that we read, they come to the foreground and we think about them directly. What should we think about those who have left? How do we think about their experience? Did, did God abandon them when they abandoned his son? What happened to them? This is not a question that we leave in the first century. We wonder about it here in the 21st century too. See, there are empty spaces in the pews. Not very many. Not very many. But, but there are spaces where people used to sit. 
Someone used to sit in that space where you're sitting this morning, but they walked away. Not just from our church. You know, we've had some leave and go, they move and they go to another church, they get married, they join another church, things like that happen. But, but these, I'm thinking of men and women, teenagers, young adults, who have left the church and left Jesus completely and entirely. What do we think about them? What do we make about them? How do we feel? How do we respond? What do we do about them? I want to show you three things in this text, three things that John tells us to think I'm going to tell you what those three things are right now. He tells us uh, first, don't be surprised. Then he tells us, don't be confused. And then third, he says, don't be deceived. So don't be surprised, don't be confused, don't be deceived. What's interesting about that in that list is he does not say, don't be dismayed. He doesn't say that because, frankly, this paragraph is clear, but it's very dismaying too. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul wrote to the Philippians about some believers, uh, some people who had left the church, those who were in a similar situation. And, and Paul wrote in Philippians 3, I'll read it, For as, as I have often told you before and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Here's Paul, weeping Paul. We don't think about Paul weeping very much. Paul says, I think about these people and the tears come to my eyes when I think about them. Those who've heard the truth and rejected it. It's a passage of scripture to listen to, uh, a sermon to listen to with a very sharp mind and a very soft heart. So what are we to think about those who have left, those who have, were here but are not here anymore because they have left Jesus? Well, three things I want to tell you. First of all, don't be surprised. I mentioned that a minute ago. Don't be surprised. Why not? Don't be surprised because this is an age of denial. This is an age of denial. Verse 18 is a loaded verse, even as we begin our walk through this passage. It's loaded. It says, dear children, John loves these people, dear children, this is the last hour. That's a phrase that deserves some thinking. Uh, uh, What... This is a phrase that, that applies to the age we, we live in. What does he mean when he says this is the last hour? The last hour before what? I think he answers that question for us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where it says that what we're waiting for is Christ appearing. We're waiting for Christ to come back. And we are in, John says, the last hour before Christ appears. Now, there are various ways to think about this phrase, and some, uh, one of the ways will get you into trouble, I think, Um, When he says the last hour, some people have struggled because they think that John was saying that that Jesus' appearance is going to come immediately. They expect it to come immediately. What happens at work uh, uh, on the Friday before a holiday weekend? There you are at work, and let's say you you leave at 5.30. 5.30 is the time to leave. You look up at the clock at 4.30, and you think to yourself, This is the last hour, the last hour before the weekend, the long weekend. And then you feel like 20 minutes has gone by and you look at the clock again and it's 4.32. And this last hour is going to be a long time. 
Some people have, have evaluated this, that, that um, John is writing, this is the last hour, Jesus is going to come immediately. Well, uh, if you think that's, if that's your emphasis in this verse, you're going to be very disappointed because it's been about 2,000 years since John wrote that. That hour between 4.30 and 5.30 on Friday is long, but it's not that long. It's not 2,000 years long. So some people thinking that John is writing this, that this is the last hour that Jesus' return is immediate, they uh, think actually that John was wrong. Uh, the apostles were wrong to expect Jesus to come back. I don't think, though, that John is writing about the timing of Christ's return. He's writing about the conditions. He is not saying that Jesus' return is going to be immediate. He's saying that it's imminent, that is, that it could happen at any moment. There is nothing more to happen. There is nothing more that must happen before the Lord Jesus returns. There's no more grand promises of God to fulfill, no more revelation to be announced before he comes. The reason is because Jesus has already come and he is God's ultimate revelation. He has come, he has fulfilled all of the plans that his father had for him. He's come, he died, he rose again, he's ascended into heaven. And aside from his return, God's plans have already unfolded in all of their fullness. The Lord Jesus is waiting for the father to give him the moment, the, the signal that the moment of his return has come and we're waiting for it too. It could happen at any time. This is the last hour in that sense. And in light of that, opposition to God now comes in the form of opposition to his son, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus told us to expect this. There's a parable that he told, a story he told in Luke chapter 20. It's a wonderful story about a man who went and bought a vineyard. He had money and he went and bought this vineyard and he planted uh, vines, grapevines, and he uh, left and he hired out, he rented the, the farm to uh, some tenant farmers. They were supposed to take care of it for him. And at the end of the growing season, he sent one of his servants to this farm, to these tenant farmers, to collect the proceeds from his vineyard. And the tenant farmers beat the servant up and sent him back. So the owner of the vineyard sent another one and then another servant Three servants in total, they all got beaten up and sent home. And then the, the landowner thought to himself, ha, ha, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son, my son. They'll listen to my son. Of course they'll listen to my son. So he sent his son, and what did the landowners do? They took the son, they didn't just beat him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. And after he stole, told this story, Jesus asked his listeners, um, what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do? And all of them said, oh, he's going to come with vengeance. That was their answer. There will be hell to pay for those who have killed and thrown the son out. So th this opposition to the Lord Jesus is not surprising to us. This is the last hour. In fact, John writes about this. We've been warned. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've already heard, you've already heard the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. Now we've got to think about this phrase, Antichrist. John's the only author of the New Testament to use this phrase, Antichrist, but he's not the only apostle to write about this person. There is coming, before the Lord Jesus returns, a human being who will arise and he will be known chiefly for his opposition to the Lord Jesus. Paul writes about this man in 2 Thessalonians 2. He calls him the man of lawlessness. You can look on your green sheets, and I believe I, I quoted this, wrote this passage down. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 5 says... 
concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the Lord Jesus has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. Here it is. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. What will he do? He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Uh, Christians disagree about how all the pieces of this fit together. I think Paul here is referring to what Jesus taught about in Mark 13. So the prophet Daniel had written about this coming one who was going to come and Jesus in Mark 13 talks about the abomination of desolation standing where it doesn't belong. And then, then Mark adds his comment, let the reader understand. It's an ironic line, let the reader understand. We've been trying to figure that out for 2,000 years, what Jesus was talking about, but let the reader understand. The abomination of desolation standing where he doesn't belong. So we have Daniel and Jesus and Paul and now John talking about this figure who is coming. And Revelation 13 and Revelation 19 describe him as a terrible and vicious beast who is in opposition to the Lord Jesus. Now, this teaching about the Antichrist has spurred a lot of imaginary fascination. There's been a lot of speculation about who this character is. Any villain in history, he's been a likely candidate. Lenin, Stalin, Hitler... Uh, there was a book published in the 70s, it was quite popular, who named Henry Kissinger as the Antichrist. Uh, my favorite, I think I've told you about this, my favorite uh, uh, suggestion about who the Antichrist is, that, wrong clearly now, was Ronald Reagan. We know it was Ronald Reagan because all of his names, Ronald Wilson Reagan, have, three, uh, have six letters in it. Six, 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 Ronald Wilson Reagan. Satan right there. Almost every pope has been identified as the Antichrist. Silly speculation. We don't know who he's going to be, but we know what he's going to do. He's going to stand in opposition to the Lord Jesus. And his coming will be a sign, a significant sign, that the return of the Lord Jesus is near. Uh, now, follow here, John. Um, the, the, the Antichrist is coming, but now, now... There are many little antichrists who are coming, little versions of him at work, people who share the antichrist's attitude about the Lord Jesus. They're going to practice the same sort of opposition and denial and deceit about him. And the presence of these false teachers, their very presence of these lying teachers, it shouldn't surprise you. Why? Because this is a sign that we live in the last hour. Don't, don't be surprised by them. That's the, the times in which we live. How many of you last week, well, especially before last Tuesday, maybe last weekend, spent a little time complaining about all the phone calls that you received? Two or three times a day, phone calls, candidates calling to tell me to go and vote. And the mailings, two or three of them a day, we'd get mailings with those grainy black and white pictures and terrible, frightening headlines. Or the television commercials. We hate them. They're, they're annoying, they're distasteful, they're wasteful, they're uh, absolutely expected. 
right? It was election day. This is what happens around election day. You shouldn't be surprised by it. That's how election day works. Have you complained yet about the cold? It was bitter this morning, wasn't it? Uh, I complained about the cold. Yesterday we spent five hours outside at a band competition. It was cold. Do you complain? Days are getting shorter. Leaves are falling to the ground. Every stable object that can be tasted or smelled is scented with pumpkin spice, right? Okay. What does it tell you? It tells you that it's fall. Don't be surprised. It's fall. Winter is coming. The signs are everywhere. You aren't surprised by that, are you? Don't be surprised that there are people who oppose the Lord Jesus. Their timing is perfect. It's the last hour. Don't be surprised by them. They're right on schedule. Their appearance is not a sign that God is weakening or that the world is slipping out of his control. Their, their appearance uh, is not a sign that, that uh, the church is failing in its mission. This is, this is what we expect His own dear son has already come. He has done what his father wanted him to do. Millions, if not billions of people have turned to him and acclaimed him as Lord. But but at the same time, opposition has arisen. It's the last hour. These people are going to come. Doesn't surprise us. Don't be surprised. That's one way to think about those who've left. Here's a second way to think about them. Don't Don't be confused. Don't be confused Don't be confused because real Christians stick. Real Christians stick. That's a phrase I borrowed from D.A. Carson. It's a a fine way, I think, to summarize verses 19 through 21. And here's where John really tackles the issue of those who have left us. Look what verse 19 says again. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now follow John's logic here. There are people in the church who are part of the church, but they have left. And what does their leaving show? John says it shows that they were not really part of the church in the first place. Or, you could put it more directly here, they didn't have the anointing that he mentions in verse 20 from the Holy One that decisively settles them in the truth. John uses the word from here in interesting ways. In the, the original, it's, it's a little bit easier to, say, uh, to see. Um, uh, they, the, verse 19 originally says, They went out from us, but they were not really from us. You know, they were from us, but they weren't really from us. You know what I'm saying here? And then he does the same thing in verse uh, uh, 21, right towards the end. The lie doesn't come from the truth. A lie might hang out with the truth a little bit, but it's not really from the truth, you know? And, and there were people who were part of us, part of the church, but they weren't really part of us. And their leaving, their leaving shows that they We're not really from us. Just like a lie is not really part of the truth, so these uh, former brothers and sisters who have left were not really part of us. This is um, crucially important logic. And at the crux of this argument is this notion, real Christians stick. If you don't stick, you're not genuinely a follower of Jesus. This is difficult. It's not hard because the concept is challenging. I can understand what he's saying. 
But what's hard about this is like you, I can think of names and faces to go along with this verse. John, in the context, I know he's, he's thinking about people who have made a decisive choice to deny the Lord Jesus. They are decisively saying, this is what you are saying in the church about Jesus is not true. I don't believe it. They're decisively, that's what's happening in this context. But I, I think this applies more broadly. I think it applies to those who just drift away. I'm asked to speculate about this a lot as a pastor. People ask me about this. What, what should I do? What should I think about this person? Did they, and, and here's some inside the church language. If you've been around for a while, this, this will make sense to you. What happened to them? Did they lose their salvation? Did God abandon them? They abandoned him, so did he abandon them? I think John says, no. They left, they left, and they're leaving as a sign that they were never really his in the first place. Isn't this hard truth? Real Christians stick. Real Christians stick despite huh, what, what people say. I can imagine a person who has left the, the church, left Jesus, and they say, no, I really did believe it, and I don't believe it anymore. What would John the Apostle say to them? John would say to them, if you left, you didn't really believe it in the first place. Listen to what John says in John, uh, Jesus says in John 8.31. Look what it says. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, if you remain in my teaching, you are really my disciples. Or Hebrews 3.14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold to our original conviction firmly to the end. Sharing in Christ is not the result of sticking to him, but sticking to him is a sign that you are a sharer in him. Real Christians stick. That's hard truth. I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, during the summer, Judy Landis used to bring to a prayer meeting little slips of paper, and on the slips of paper were the names, the first names of young adults who have been part of our congregation um, they grew up at Grace, they were associated with Grace in some way, but they have left, and by all appearances, they have walked away from the faith. So they have no current connection to the church, and, uh, or to any church. And, and during the summer, we'd pass this bucket she had around with these names, and we'd draw out two or three, and we'd write the names down, and we'd pray for these young men and women. And I've been around long enough that I recognize most of those names. and know who those people are. I've been around long enough that I've baptized some of those people. Are they genuine believers? It's absolutely possible that their faith is real and that they're in a period of wandering. The Bible does talk about wandering sheep. But I think that what John is writing here is more uh, likely. They went from out from us, but they did not really belong to us. They have no anointing. Another way to say that. Verse 20, that you have an anointing. Those who leave, they did not have the anointing from the Holy One. Now, what is the anointing from the Holy One? We're not sure. Most likely, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, when the Bible uses the word anointing as, a, um, as an image, it's talking most, mostly about the Holy Spirit. And you have an anointing, the Holy Spirit, from the Holy One, 
the Holy One, the Lord Jesus, is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. So that's probably what it's, it's writing about here. Um, let's see. We sang this morning in Crown with Many Crowns. He's one with the Father, one with the Spirit from, from the throne given, the Holy Spirit given from the throne of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit here who, who settles us in this truth. Those who walk away don't have that anointing. Now, I should just say, because the word anointing doesn't exactly say the Holy Spirit, I'm interpreting that. Some people question that and they say, well, maybe the Holy Spirit, that's not sufficient here because it's subjective. What's to keep somebody who left from saying, you have the Holy Spirit, I have the Holy Spirit too. So you have the Holy Spirit and I have the Holy Spirit and I say this about Jesus and you say this about Jesus. Well, we've both got the Holy Spirit. I'm making that claim. I see, I see that. Except the anointing here is so closely associated with the truth, the truth, the truth. So maybe we should say that this is Holy Spirit-inspired truth, that this anointing is the, the, the Holy Spirit driving the truth into the hearts of genuine followers of Jesus. And those who walk away don't have this gift because real Christians stick. hard. One of uh, Jesus' uh, most well-known parables is about four different types of soil. It's notable among his parables because there's an interpretation of it. <laughs> it's a good thing it's interpreted because we even have the interpretation and we're not sure what it means. But, but uh, 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 it, it, four different types of soil, how do they respond when the seed that was planted on them uh, lands? Well, uh, the first soil is hard. It's beaten down ground and the seed that that lands on it kind of falls there by mistake the sower is just kind of being profligate with the seed the seed falls in this hard soil and and before the seed can even penetrate that hard soil a bird comes and eats it and takes it away it it reminds us of of what sometimes happens when hard-hearted people they hear the good news about jesus but before it sinks in at all it disappears from their consideration The third type of soil is what I'm interested in that Jesus talks about. In Luke, Jesus calls it rocky soil. There are parts of Palestine that uh, have a a thick, solid limestone base, and on top of it, there's a few inches of topsoil. And and sometimes seed would land on it, and and, uh, that that topsoil being so thin would be warm soil from the sun, and the seed would, would germinate quickly, new life. Oh, this is great. It's going to be a great season. Look how fast that plant is growing. It's wonderful. But then the sun, it starts to get hot. And that newly growing plant reaches down deep into the soil. It sends roots down to get water. And all it hits is limestone. It doesn't get water at all. So it, it withers and dies. and never produces fruit. It doesn't stick. There are people like that who respond quickly to the gospel and they grow fast and it's exciting. But when trouble comes, when persecution or hardship comes, they have no root system and they wither and die and they never produce fruit. That happens. It's interesting. The second type of soil, it withers and dies too without producing fruit. Not because of persecution or hardship, but because of pleasure. It gets distracted. Uh, The plant... Uh, people, they get distracted by the pleasures and cares of this world. Richard Richard, uh, Vermbrand was a Romanian Jew. He became a follower of Jesus 
when he still lived in Romania. He uh, eventually, after he had been freed from a Romanian prison, he spoke around the world about the underground church. But in the 1940s and 50s, he spent 14 years in prison being beaten regularly for his faith. He did not waver. He writes about this one day after a particularly brutal beating. One of the prison guards said to him, How long are you going to keep holding on to your stupid faith? And Richard Burnband looked at him and he said, You know, I have seen countless atheists uh, on their deathbeds regretting that they have been godless and they call out on the Lord Jesus to save them. He said, Can you imagine a Christian who is nearing death uh, renouncing his faith in Jesus and calling on Marx or Lenin to save him? And the soldier said, Well, that's a clever answer. And then Vermbrand said to him, uh, when an engineer has built a bridge, the fact that a cat can pass over the bridge is no credit, no proof that the bridge is good. A train has to pass over the bridge to prove how strong that bridge is. You can be an atheist when everything is going well. It doesn't prove that atheism is true. Your atheism won't hold up in the moment of crisis. And there are those who respond to the gospel and the gospel doesn't respond. The gospel, their belief, their faith, their not real faith doesn't hold up in the moment of persecution and it doesn't hold up to the allure of the temptations of this world. Does your faith hold up? Christianity is not a get peace quick scheme. It's not something to dabble in. It's not something to turn to when uh, you're going through a rough patch and then you forget it when life gets better. Real Christians stick. This afternoon we're going to vote to welcome nine new members of our congregation. It's wonderful. If all nine are accepted by the church, it will bring our membership total. We're going to take John Krause's resignation to talk about someone who got married and left the church. He's in another church. He's fine. So... But uh, 178, 178 members of the church. So 178 times, actually way more than that because we've had some leave for various reasons. 178 times the members of our church have said, I, I, when it's been time to welcome somebody in. When we say I, and we vote somebody in, we're saying to them, we believe that you are a genuine follower of Jesus. We believe that you belong to us, that you're one of us. But some of those men and women that we have voted in have left. They, they went out from us. John uses the same language here. It's interesting. They went out from us, verse 19. It's the same language that he uses to describe Judas in John 13 when he leaves the Last Supper. Judas went out. They went out. It's pretty decisive. We were wrong, Apparently. When we voted these members in and we said, we, we're, we were saying, I, yes, we accept that you're a genuine follower of Jesus. We were wrong. When I baptized them, I was wrong. The elders should not have recommended them to you as followers of Jesus. The elders were wrong. We've been wrong about who is truly in and truly out. We're not perfect in our judgments. We've been wrong. But don't be confused about this. Real Christians stick. Now third, here this morning, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Why should you not be deceived? Because you must confess the Lord Jesus. You must confess the Lord Jesus. 
In verses 22 and 23, John sets down plainly the truth about the relationship between the Father and the Son. Look at the text again here. It says, verse 22, Who's the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. There are liars, there are deceivers who will tell you differently. Uh, uh, They will tell you uh, that there is a different relationship between the Son and the Father than than John is, is writing about here. There are some who will treat Jesus as secondary or Jesus as trivial, but he's not. And in some religious circles, he's notable by his absence. They talk about generic God without the Lord Jesus. That happens most of the time when we have public religious gatherings. Um, so our, our, our government officials, they gather together at the, the Washington Cathedral or somewhere for some sort of religious public gathering, and we talk a lot about God and not much about Jesus, if at all. Uh, the message of these false teachers is that Jesus is not the Christ. Um, John seems to have two different errors that the church has dealt with over the years. Uh, there are some who deny the true humanity of Jesus, of, of the God-man. Uh, that was more prominent in Jesus' day. So there's this, this divine character who's not truly human. And then there are those who say that Jesus of Nazareth is not truly divine. That would be more common in, in our day. He's not really God or he's not really human. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the God-man, God the Son. He's co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit. He took to himself a human nature, including a body, in uh, the womb of the Virgin Mary. And in this one person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, there are two natures. He is truly human and truly divine, united together, and thus they shall ever be united in this one person. That's what the Bible teaches. And to deny these truths about the Lord Jesus means that you don't have the Father. You don't have a relationship with the Father without the Son. You cannot know the Father without the Son. Remember what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Herein lies the answer to one of the questions that rolls around every now and then. This, This question is kind of cyclical in our culture. It rolls around. Is it true, some people argue this, that the Jews, that Jews and Christians and Muslims all worship the same God, but that Christians also have Jesus? Or, to put it another way, sometimes it's asked, is Allah the father of Jesus? The same God? No, he is not. Uh, Muslims familiar with their own faith and Christians who know the Bible both affirm this together. We agree that that Allah is not the father of Jesus. Uh, According to Islam, Allah has no son. And if you don't worship the son, you have no relationship with the father. There is, if if the God you worship has no son, he is not the God of the Bible. If you deny the son, you cannot know the father. These verses warn us, I mean, it's, it's so clear Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. But then at the end of verse 23, there's this wonderful invitation, isn't there? Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Oh, brothers and sisters, here's good news. Here's a real and true promise. If you come to the Father through the Son, 
If you turn to the Son, the Savior, you will receive all of the good that the Father has promised in Him. Jesus Christ is the source and fountain of all of God's promises. God meant it when He said it. Turn to the Son and you will have no need to fear of the Father. All of, all of God's promises are yes in the Lord Jesus. In 1 John 5, 11 and 12, look, I'll listen, listen to what it says. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you have the Son, you have life. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me, them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you will turn and you will trust in the Son, you will have life and all, of it enta- all that it entails. Forgiveness, peace with the Father. Don't be shaken. If you have the Son, you have the Father also. Remember the hymn that we sometimes sing? Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Jesus, what a strength and weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, sometimes failing. He, my strength, my victory wins. Jesus, what a help in sorrow. While the billows o'er me roll, even when my heart is breaking, He, my comfort, helps my soul. Jesus, I do now receive him. More than all in him I find. He hath granted me forgiveness. I am his and he is mine. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Why is that precious truth? Because of who he is. He is God's son. And whoever has him has the Father also. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we confess to you that this is a hard passage for us to read. We are grateful to you because it is clarifying. But it is hard for us because we think about those we love who have walked away. Some of them are children, grandchildren, nieces or nephews, dear friends, children we taught in Sunday school, people who went on youth group retreats with us, those that I have baptized. They come to mind and it's hard to think about them and what this verse entails for their relationship with you. We're thankful that you tell us the truth. You you are very direct and very plain about it. God, we, we pray that you would be merciful to these whom we think of this morning together. That you would show them kindness. Lord, they, they, they grew up having every advantage of hearing the gospel in the church or at retreats or in Sunday school classes in their own home. And yet they've walked away. Surely that is worthy of your 
righteous and fierce wrath, but we pray for mercy for them. Lord, um, help us to be as agitated as we should about them and not agitated anymore. May these words about having the Lord Jesus and then thus having the Father and all the promises that come with, with you, from you, may they comfort us in the midst of our dismay. Grant us clarity as a congregation in this so that we would call one another to persevere, be faithful in it, remind one another and confront and admonish and rebuke one another. Don't walk away. Don't walk away from the Lord Jesus because he is our only hope. He has a hope worth celebrating and worth glorying in. Fill us with joy even as we sorrow. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. I invite you all to stand as we sing once more this morning.